and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's meeting at the NATO summit in Brussels, at which NATO leaders warned that China poses a military threat representing, quote, a systematic challenge, even though the alliance does not want to start a new Cold War with China. This following the G7 meeting at which group of seven leaders criticised China on human rights abuses of the Uyghurs, the crackdown in Hong Kong and threats against Taiwan. Joining us is Orville Schell, the director of the Asia Society Centre on US-China relations, whose latest book is Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century. We'll discuss how the West got China wrong in assuming that as China got richer, it would get freer, but Xi Jinping has proven that wrong as he consolidates the power of the Communist Party over the country and cracks down on dissent and democratic aspirations. And we'll assess what NATO means when it says, quote, we need to address together as an alliance the challenge that China poses to our security. Then we'll go to Israel to look into the new government that has ended Netanyahu's 12-year rule and examine its policies and likely staying power since it has a majority of just one seat in the Senate and is largely there because the Israeli people are sick of political dysfunction and repeated elections that don't yield results. Gideon Levy an Israeli journalist and columnist for Haaretz and a member of its editorial board, who was formerly a spokesman for Shimon Peres, joins us to discuss his latest article at Haaretz, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has nothing to lose. Then finally, with a rally this evening in Charleston, West Virginia, organized by Reverend Barber's Poor People's Campaign, aimed at pressuring Senator Joe Manchin to support voting rights and abolishing the filibuster, we will speak with Anne-Marie Lafazo, a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law. She joins us to discuss how infrastructure is the key to winning over Joe Manchin, who can neither alienate the left in his state, who are important in the primaries, and the right who voted in huge numbers for Trump. And joining us now is Orville Schell, who was formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley and is currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. His books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square and The Next Generation of China's Leader, Virtual Tibet, Searching for Shangri-La from the Himalayas to Hollywood, Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century, and his latest book is My Old Home. Welcome to Background Briefing, Orville Schell. Pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us. And China got rebuked by both the G7, group of seven leaders, at their recently concluded summit in Cornwall, England, and, and again at the NATO summit underway in Brussels. And they've sort of struck back rather in a fit of pique and annoyance at the West. So do you think these criticisms are well-framed, legitimate, or, I mean, uh, on, in the case of NATO, they say on the one hand, they're warning that China poses a military threat and represents a systemic challenge, even though they go on to say that the alliance does not want to start a new Cold War with China. So what do you make of it? Well, I think uh, what is undeniable is that China's wolf warrior diplomacy uh, has created quite a, a substantial blowback around the world from Canada to India, Australia, Japan, and now uh, we see Europe 
which I think lived most sort of firmly in the world of ambiguity uh, because they have tremendously important trade relations with China. But now we begin to see even Europe uh, drifting more back into the alliance structure with the U.S. and recognizing that China does pose certain risks and threats that probably should be addressed in concert. Uh, with other like-minded countries, and thus the G7, and again at NATO, we did see for the first time a real coalescing of the alliance structure uh, around something which normally it never, the transatlantic alliance never deals with, namely China. Well, of course, Germany, its biggest trading partner is China. So there's no question that there are these deep economic ties. But in terms of the wolf warrior diplomacy, which perhaps has backfired, Xi Jinping quite recently talked about projecting love. Is that uh, in any way a useful repair job that he did or tried to do? Well, I think in Xi Jinping had a study session for the Politburo in which he used a term that in all of my decades of uh, studying China, I never thought I'd see associated with the Chinese Communist Party. In Chinese, it's ai, namely lovable. And he spoke about wanting to make the party more lovable, which caused many to wonder, was he beginning to get some recognition of the fact that he had engendered a very powerful counter-reaction and a great deal of suspicion and a great deal of worry around the world about China's militant, very belligerent wolf warrior diplomacy. I think he's aware of it, but I think he's still very much locked into this sort of tit-for-tat world. They do something we will look weak if we don't retaliate in kind. And that's why we're on this very dangerous sort of spiral uh, in which relations, not just between the U.S. and China, between many other countries, too, is, is on, a, on a downward, uh, downward sort of uh, escalator. But do you think that analysts and diplomats in the West got China wrong in assuming that as China got richer, it would get freer? Because Xi Jinping seems to have proven that thesis wrong. My own view about that, uh, Ian, is that we did not get it wrong. Uh, engagement, which began with Nixon and Kissinger in 1972, in effect, was the right policy to seek to see if we couldn't help uh, usher China out of its Maoist period into something more congenial and convergent with the, the global order of liberal democratic countries outside. Uh, and there were times during Chinese history, particularly in the 80s and then again in the late 90s, where it actually looked like it could slowly happen. You could bend the metal of Leninism and maybe ultimately have it molt out of its revolutionary past. But Xi Jinping really brought that to a stop, uh, an abrupt halt. And that's where we are now. We our old operating system of engagement where we imagine things slowly converging is gone. And we don't yet really have a new operating system. And so we're living in this world of kind of uh, latter day Cold War uh, that's gathering momentum with each passing day. So is there a possibility there that you could have a Hu Yaobang or a Xiao Jiang or a Deng Xiaoping emerge to stop this trajectory? 
you know, there is always a, a, a possibility in China of, of almost anything happening because this this society and country is very unresolved in terms of what it is finally aiming to be. So uh, we've never predicted anything with any accuracy. So yes, we, we could have a change of leaders, but I wouldn't bank on it in the near future. And I think it is a very... Uh, would be very foolish of us just to sort of wait and hope that fate would deliver us some other leader. Fate may not, and in which case we're going to have to learn how to deal with Xi. And the real question is, what is the best way to do that? And what would your suggestion be? Well, I think he is now having gained wealth and power through a really extraordinary uh, developmental uh, success story to, for which the party must receive some acclaim. He has imagined now that you don't have to give a little to get a little. You don't have to propitiate anybody, compromise here or there to get some bigger goal. You can just thunder on and say, you know, our way or the highway. And I think that's very dangerous. So I think it's important that we push back and doubly important that we don't simply do it as one country, the United States, but do it in the framework of a, an alliance structure, both transatlantic, which is happening now, and transpacific. But at the same time, we always, and here's where Trump failed, leave the door open. We actively seek diplomatic solutions uh, in any way possible uh, so that we, we always have a, 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 a some kind of possibility of exit from the spiral we're in. And again, I'm speaking with Orville Schell, who was formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley and is currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society Center on U.S.-China Relations. His books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square and The Next Generation of China's Leader, Virtual Tibet, Searching for Shangri-La from the Himalayas to Hollywood, Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century, and his latest book is My Old Home. So both of the G7 and the NATO summit underway in Brussels, all shell this, there have been distinct Cold War overtones, undoubtedly, and I understand that there's a sense that the challenges are a declining Russia and a rising China. But some of the comparisons, and uh, I think, are pretty loose in terms of the Cold War being the framing, because the Soviet Union was a totalitarian state where the people had no access to the outside world, and it seems that China, by comparison, under Xi Jinping, as much as he's cracking down on dissent and democratic aspirations, is, is more authoritarian than totalitarian because they, China has created a massive middle class who travel abroad, spend money abroad, and more importantly, they return to China. Well, I think uh, it's important to recognize that China really is something new in human history. It is a techno-autocracy, if you want to call it totalitarian, authoritarian, whatever. It is a techno-autocracy that has blended uh, new technologies with all sorts of authoritarian, uh, big leader culture rule. And it is one that is also, unlike the Soviet Union, been economically very successful not just at home, but in spreading uh, its, its trade and its, uh, its sort of commercial ties around the world. So this makes it, in many ways, uh, its successfulness more of a threat to liberal democratic countries. It doesn't 
precisely as the Soviet Union did aspire to any kind of world revolution. But it certainly is becoming bolder and bolder about suggesting that its model, whatever that is, it's, there's a word in Chinese, the China option, the Zhongguo Fang'an, that that is something worthwhile other countries looking at, because why? It works. Well, there's no question that under Trump, it was the worst of all possible worlds. The first thing he did was get rid of the TPP. And, you know, the cardinal rule of geopolitics is to unite your allies and divide your enemies. And Trump did the opposite. And the G7 did not come up with anything robust in terms of dealing with climate change. For example, they didn't get a consensus on eliminating coal, which definitely would affect China. And it clearly is the leading cause of global warming. And when they talked about China needs to respect fundamental freedoms, especially in relation to the Uyghurs. There was no agreement on banning Western participation in anything that perhaps would benefit from forced labor. So these are obviously sensitive points with Xi Jinping, but aren't they necessary if the West stands for anything? Well, I think, you know, the trouble with Trump was he alienated allies rather than reassured him. But that said, I think we have to recognize that the Trump administration, not so much Trump himself, but certain people within the National Security Council and and in some other uh, uh, agencies actually did begin to understand what I think the Biden administration now wholeheartedly subscribes to, that China had changed and that it was Uh, getting to be a threat that needed to be assessed in a very different way. We couldn't just assume that it was going to slowly change and become more more friendly and, and, as I said before, more convergent. So, in many ways, the paradox is that Trump was a kind of a train wreck as a leader himself. But he did, and his, his, his officials did perceive something important about China. It was not reciprocal, it was not fair, it was not playing by the rules, and they changed uh, policy. And the Biden administration has really hardly rolled back any of those policies, which didn't come directly from Trump, but come from, came from some of his rather astute officials working quietly in, the, in I suppose you could say, the deep state. Right. Are you talking about Matthew Pottinger? Matthew Pottinger would be one of them. Uh, Matthew Turpin, another guy who ran the China desk at the NSC. People like H.R. McMaster. There there were some very smart people there who who were quietly at work and, and not running the train off the tracks the way Trump was. Well, Biden said, I think China has to start to act more responsibly in terms of international norms on human rights and transparency. How do you think that's going to play? Won't that fall on deaf ears? Well, I think in the wolf warrior diplomacy world, it will not only fall on deaf ears, it will, it will uh, precipitate a, a counter-reaction which is why we probably will continue to see a, 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 a sort of a, a, will be on the downward slide uh, into an increasingly fraught relationship. But I think it, it's essential that the U.S. not only be not just the only country that sort of confronts China, 
but that insofar as the, the global order can come together to say we have certain rules, we have certain uh, boundary lines, we have certain ways that we must conduct ourselves, that will be uh, most effective. Whether she will be able to, to understand that China's national security really depends on fitting into the world and not just defying the world, that is another question. And it's very hard to answer that. But is it possible, I mean, it would seem to me to be perhaps even likely that if this new investigation into the possibility of an accident at the Wuhan Institute for Virology caused the COVID pandemic, won't that really tank China's relationship with the world and probably really bring about, you know, we had enough China bashing under Trump. And, of course, Trump never made the distinction between the Communist Party government of China and the Chinese people. But what do you think will happen, would happen, Orville Shell, if, uh, if the U.S. intelligence community that had been tasked by Biden to come up with this report in, well, it was 90 days from when, it was, when he issued the statement, do you think things could really get bad? I think we may never know conclusively exactly where it began because China is opaque. It is not transparent. Uh, but if it did become abundantly clear that it was a laboratory leak from the Institute of Virology in Wuhan, then uh, I think it would not look good for China. But you cannot dismiss China. Uh, it has a very powerful and effective economy. And many, many countries, uh, you mentioned Germany. The, it's not just that China's exporting to Germany and other countries. It's that the German car industry is in China and depends on China. That's its main profit center. So many countries have the needle of China in their arm. And they're not going to easily get it out in terms of finance and trade. So China has a lot of cards to play. And despite the fact that I would say the wind is emphatically blowing against China at the moment, because so many people are upset, disturbed and worried by its, its, its sort of global behavior, it still is very powerful, very economically successful and has got tentacles all around the world in ways that aren't going to be easy to decouple from. So just in the last couple of minutes then, what about the Quad? Is that a viable block, to not necessarily to challenge China, but to perhaps contain China? Well, the Quad is a, 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 something that the Trump administration began, and Biden heartily embraced it, and it involves India, Australia, and Japan. And what's so striking about the Quad is that uh, China has completely alienated almost all of those countries through attacks on the Ladakh, on the Indian Chinese border in the Himalayas, through this sort of wanton wolf warrior diplomacy with and punitive diplomacy with Australia, and also many aspects of its relationship with Japan, um, some stemming from the Second World War and animosity towards Japanese, is also alienated Japan to a substantial degree. So this is a, an alliance which you could say that China itself has, in effect, uh, conjured up, not the allies who are forming it. It is China that pushed these countries uh, into coming together. And you have to ask yourself, how is that in the national interest of China? And here you, here you could only conclude that it is not, and that Xi Jinping has overplayed his hand and really has acted in a way which may ultimately harm China rather than helping it. Well, Michelle, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
Great pleasure. Thank you. And thank you again. And I'm be speaking with Orville Shell, who was formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley and currently is the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. His books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square and The Next Generation of China's Leaders, Virtual Tibet, Searching for Shangri-La from the Himalayas to Hollywood and Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century and his latest book is My Old Home. We're going to take a brief station break and back and go to Israel to look into the new government that has ended Netanyahu's 12-year rule. In the days of the Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Israel is Gideon Levy, who's an Israeli journalist and columnist for Haaretz and a member of the newspaper's editorial board. He is the former spokesman for Shimon Peres, and Gideon Levy writes the weekly Twilight Zone feature, which covers the Israeli occupation in the West Bank and Gaza for over the last 30 years. And his latest book is The Punishment of Gaza, and he has an op-ed at Haaretz. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has nothing to lose. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gideon Levy. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So thanks for joining us. And um, in his last speech before the Knesset, outgoing Prime Minister Netanyahu really pulled out all the stops. He evoked the Holocaust. He accused Bennett of essentially selling out the country along with Biden, who is suggesting that somehow there was an analogy between FDR during World War II refusing to bomb the trains leading to the gas chambers was the equivalent of what Naftali Bennett would do by not standing up to pressure from Joe Biden. He even mentioned uh, private conversations that he had with Biden. So was this the act of a desperate man? No, I don't think he's desperate, but he's very hurted, wounded, and like any wounded person, he reacts, he overreacts, and uh, I think he never imagined that this will happen and will happen now and in this way, and therefore he reacts like he reacts, but uh, in Hebrew we say, we have an expression that you don't catch somebody in his sorrow. So... In that case, you don't feel like criticizing him at this point? I can criticize him a lot, but I'm not part of the anti-BB camp in Israel, which was convinced that anything and anyone will be better than him. Mm -hmm. I don't share this view. And does that mean that you think that Naftali Bennett will be worse? I'm for sure he will not be any better. I'm not sure he will be worse. But I don't see that on the main issues, 
this government, and it's not Naftali Bennett, because Naftali Bennett will not be the strongest person in this government. He stands for a small minority in this government, and uh, the whole combination is not a very promising one. So is Yair Lapid really the power behind the throne? Is that what you're saying? He is, and he is also not a big promise for Israel. What's wrong with him? I thought he um, was the sort of leader of the secular Israelis. No, he's leader of the center, and people of the center are always not my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. But are they, are they numerous? What are the numbers here? Because this is a pretty frail coalition, just like the Democrats have only controlled the Senate here in the United States by one vote coming from the vice president. Is that an analogous situation in Israel, that this is a coalition yes, hanging by a thread? Yes, but it's a different system because the president can continue to serve as a president even if he loses his major majority in the Senate or in the Congress. While in Israel, if a prime minister loses his majority in the Knesset, he loses his job, he loses his position. So it's more fragile here. But in terms of Netanyahu now being the leader of the opposition, does he still have parliamentary immunity? Because one of the assumptions was the reason he was desperate to hold on to power was that he didn't want to go to jail. No, no, we are beyond this stage. He has no immunity. He didn't have any immunity as prime minister, but he saw that as prime minister he would be able to appear more powerful in court. The trial will last at least for two, three more years and maybe even more. And, uh, and he has no immunity. Not before, not now. So is there a Shakespearean quality to this in as much as Naftali Bennett used to be one of Netanyahu's chiefs of staff? It was close to him in the Likud party and he appears to have stabbed him in the back? Yeah, you can portray it uh, like this. It's for sure a very powerful drama, sure. Mm -hmm. And the bitterness is that Netanyahu exhibited in this last debate where he evoked the Holocaust. There was a lot of heckling from Likud in the Knesset against Bennett. Is that going to continue, that kind of boisterous behavior? Yes, I guess so, because they do anything possible to tyrannize him and to make this government fall. The political culture in Israel is different than the political culture in your country. And uh, we will see some more scenes like yesterday, absolutely. And again, I'm speaking with Gideon Levy, who's an Australian journalist and columnist for Haaretz and a member of the newspaper's editorial board. He's the former spokesman for Shimon Peres, and he writes the weekly Twilight Zone feature, which covers the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza for over the last 30 years. And his latest book is The Punishment of Gaza, and he has an op-ed at Haaretz. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has nothing to lose. And we spoke relatively recently Gideon in the midst of the beginning of the latest round of fighting between Israel and Hamas in, over Gaza and is this in any way a result of that in other words there were two schools of thought that either Netanyahu let this situation get out of control because he wanted to have a little war to help boost his ratings or the other school of thought was that he was simply negligent but is the fact that he's out of power now in any way connected to a kind of aftermath of what happened recently with the, the war between Israel and Hamas? Absolutely not. Those who accused him 
in uh, getting to this war in order to stay in power see now that this was uh, this was just a lie he did so like former government prime ministers in israel who believe that uh, military action is the only right policy vis-a-vis the hamas a, a belief and a policy which i don't share obviously but uh, the reality shows that uh, he went to this war and went out of this war very, very rapidly. Would he do it for political reasons? He would stay in Gaza. So, I mean, I understand that the Ram Party, the Palestinian Israeli Islamist Party, were originally negotiating with Netanyahu, and now they're a key component of this new government, which is an odd mixture with Naftali Bennett's prime minister, with only about 6% of the Knesset seats, he is the leader, or former leader of this settler movement. Then you have the, what, three Islamist seats, and how many seats do you have for Moretz, the, the left-wing party? Six. 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 And then they've got, yeah. three, they've got three cabinet members, though, don't they have? No, they have two. Two. But yeah. is that what Netanyahu's railing against when he says this is a dangerous left-wing Sorry, government? they have three. Sorry, sorry, sorry. They have yeah, three. I thought You're they right. had three, yeah. Yeah, 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 you're right, sorry. But it, does that explain why Netanyahu's railing against this new government, calling it a dangerous left-wing government, because of the Meretz party? No, no, he knows very well that the influence of Meretz and of Labour and of Ram will be extremely limited in this government because the power is, the hands, is in the hands of the bigger parties and mainly the right-wing parties. Uh, you see also the portfolios that uh, Merit and Labour and Ram got. They are quite minor portfolios, while the right-wingers got all the important and powerful portfolios. So, the conventional wisdom is that the reason that Ram is joining the coalition is because they simply want government services for Israeli-Palestinians, who, in the midst of this latest war with Gaza... They were involved in communal violence with right-wing Israeli vigilantes, who I believe are con- continuing their attacks. And there was some, uh, I saw some footage just in the last couple of days of beating up Palestinians and the police beating up Palestinians in around um, Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem. So what's the motive there? Are the, the Ram people trying to get government services just to simply have, have a secure community? They are doing so in order to get some kind of equality or more equality in budgets. Uh, still, the situation is far of being equal between the Israeli Jewish citizens and the Palestinian citizens. We are not speaking about the Palestinians in the occupied territories, but within Israel. And he came to the conclusion that instead of fighting the government from outside, he will try to achieve more from inside. And he might be right. So, in your article at Haaretz, Gideon Levy, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has nothing to lose. You refer to this new government as a government of extremists, but responsible ones. Uh, elaborate on that, if you will. No, I don't remember that I phrased it like this. Uh-huh. Uh, my, art- my article mainly reminded all of us that one government in Pretoria changed another government in Pretoria 
and both governments are in favor of continuing the apartheid situation. Do you refer to Israel as Pretoria in the, of the Middle East? Absolutely. So, How can you not? How the, can you not? Well, that, that seems to be the only direction that the country is heading in, and it has been in that way for some time. Right. With essentially subcontracting the West Bank to the PLA and turning uh, Gaza into an outdoor prison. So, right. just to quote from the article, though, half the nation feels it's going from darkness to light. The other feels it's doing the opposite. So, you said, definitely said that. So, tell me more about what, you, what you're implying there. This I was implying to the fact that Netanyahu has to step down. And we never had such a hated and admired prime minister in Israel before. So half Israelis think that the fact that uh, Netanyahu is stepping down is a catastrophe, not less than a catastrophe for the state of Israel. And the other half thinks that it's a new dawn over Israel without uh, Netanyahu. I think that both are exaggerating, but in any case, yes, half of the Israelis were deeply, deeply sad and, and painful yesterday, and the other half was celebrating. That's a fact. Well, the picture, though, of Bennett and the leader of Ram and Yalapid all shaking hands, I mean, that did have a kind of positive effect, didn't it? Yes, and uh, Netanyahu has an indirect uh, role in it because he legitimized Ram. And after he legitimized Ram, so the center-left could easily uh, go with Ram. But without the legitimization that Netanyahu gave them when he tried to combine a government with them, without this legitimization, the center-left in Israel would never dare to do so. But surely there's an, a big part of the constituency in Israel must be just tired of these endless elections and these all these wranglings over coalitions and all the deals that have to be made to form a coalition, particularly in the case of Netanyahu making deals with the ultra-Orthodox. Is there any... Absolutely. Aren't people weary of all that? Absolutely. Above all, another elections would really um, create a terrible damage in, in Israeli political culture because people would stop believing in democracy, in elections, in parties. By now, there is already a damage, and this damage would be... I mean, this was really the worst option. Another fifth election, which, would ne which, which, which wouldn't lead to anywhere in any case. The fifth elections would have uh, ended exactly like the fourth, and the fourth like the third, the third like the second, and the second like the first. So does that mean that, that there will be a period of grace? Is there a chance that this government can stand up for a while? Uh, because it seems like Netanyahu is going to spend every ounce of his energy trying to bring it down. Right now the chances are not very promising because, as you mentioned, they are based on a majority of one vote. And in Israeli politics, one vote is really a very fragile majority. And in any given moment, any given member of parliament who is frustrated because of something 
can can make these governments fall. So right now, if they will not be able to add more members of other parties into their coalition, then the chances that they will stay in power for long are very small. But if they will find some more partners, and it's not impossible, then this government can last uh, quite a long time, yes. But can it can it capture the mood that you just talked about, the weariness with political wrangling and the impossibility of having another election? In other words, if they fall, won't you have to have another election and wouldn't that be a deterrent in favour of keeping this coalition alive and, and helping it govern? Absolutely, and this is the reason why this coalition was formed, exactly because what you described. This coalition was formed because the other option, and there was only one more option, of going to fifth elections was really perceived as, 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 as a worse of all worlds. And, and therefore, they all got united to prevent this. But will this hold them together for four years? I'm not sure. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Gideon Levy, let's talk a little bit about the Palestinians and, of course, you, you cover the West Bank and Gaza uh, with your column, The Twilight Zone. It looks as if there's not going to be any change vis-a-vis policies towards the Palestinians, with particularly with Naftali Bennett being the Prime Minister and the leader of the settler movement. So how do you see uh, the next, assuming this government lasts for a while, what do you expect from them in terms of dealing with the Palestinians? Very little, if at all. I guess the Americans will try to renew some kind of uh, peace process. I guess that uh, the Bennett government will cope with it, knowing that it leads to nowhere. So, no initiatives. What about uh, the United States? I mean, what Netanyahu was railing against in, in the Knesset uh, was on Sunday was that basically Biden's going to force uh, Neftali Bennett's hand to go along with the, renewing the JCPOA P5 plus 1 deal with Iran and somehow Neftali Bennett's going to sell out the country to Iran, Iranian influence and Netanyahu has vowed that he will stand up to Iran no matter what. Iran seems to be the big bogeyman there. What's your sense about the broader geopolitics here? I think that uh, Bennett, like any other prime minister, would not have much choice. This agreement with Iran will be reached, and no Israeli prime minister can uh, can stand on the way when there is a decisive and devoted uh, American president. He, he cannot stop it, and I'm not sure it's bad for Israel. Netanyahu, who opposed any agreement with uh, Iran, led Israel to a worse situation than 10 years ago. Uh, Iran is more powerful today than 10 years ago, no doubt about this. Well, Iran, through Hezbollah, have an enormous amount of leverage, don't they, in terms of right. the amount of missiles that would rain down on Israel if that... It was bad enough having Hamas fire these puny missiles at Israel, but imagine what would happen if Iran's surrogate in Lebanon started to rain down missiles. That's right. That's the uneasy situation that did you have in Israel, right? Absolutely. Well, I thank you for joining us. Um, 
no last words of encouragement here. We we always tend to have pessimistic discussions, Gideon. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Thank uh, you very much, Larry, and hope to hear from you again. Definitely. Thanks a lot. And again, I've been speaking. Bye bye. Bye bye. And again, I've been speaking with Gideon Levy, who's an Israeli journalist and columnist for Haaretz and a member of the newspaper's editorial board. He's a former spokesman for Shimon Peres. He writes the weekly Twilight Zone feature, which covers the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza for the last over the last 30 years. And his latest book is The Punishment of Gaza. And he has an op-ed at Haaretz. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has nothing to lose. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the rally this evening in Charleston, West Virginia, organized by the Reverend Barber's Poor People's Campaign, aimed at pressuring Senator Joe Manchin to support voting rights and abolish the filibuster. and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. Joining us now is Anne-Marie LaFarza, who's a professor of law at West Virginia University's College of Law, where she teaches labor and employment law, jurisprudence, and comparative labor law. She's currently a leadership fellow in the Office of the Associate Vice President for Creative and Scholarly Activity and a research scholar for the NYU Center for Labor and Employment. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anne-Marie LaFarza. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And in West Virginia, starting about now in the evening uh, on Monday, the Reverend William Barber's Moral Monday movement are holding a Moral Monday rally in uh, Charleston aimed at getting the attention of Joe Manchin, who they believe is obstructing democratic efforts to protect and expand voting rights and end the filibuster, etc. So... What do you think of this tactic? Is it going to work? I don't think so. I think that what they don't understand, and by the way, I'm very sympathetic to the progressive cause, and I agree with just about all of their, all of their uh, goals. The problem is that you have a very poor state. I was looking it up that if you compare New York to West Virginia, then, and you gave West Virginians the equivalent of 15 for the minimum wage for New York, what it would be worth, it would only raise the minimum wage to $10. So, one, you're putting pressure on Joe Manchin and calling him immoral for having a wage, uh, for, not, uh, for not accepting a $15 minimum wage, which it's hard to, um, that, that tactic is, one, incorrect, and two is not going to sway him. Um, two, you have a you have a state that is extremely, extremely pro Trump, 
But three, there, is a, there are enough people who are open-minded that have voted for Democrats and non-Trumpian Republicans in this state. But, so what you need is to give Joe Manchin um, what he needs for West Virginians, who are very poor, and we have no infrastructure. So the real, the real thing is I don't think appealing to his, to his morality isn't going to work because it's really a false it's a really a false metaphor, and it's 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 not it's really unfair. Um, there's much more. Or there's there's in par- pockets of New York. There's as much poverty, and there's is, that that fifteen is going very isn't going very far. That fifteen dollars isn't going very far in New York. Um, I think you really need to appeal to what we need in West Virginia, which is infrastructure, better uh, and infrastructure. I mean broadly, roads, not just roads, um, high speed rails better cable. This is what we really need. Well, but what about voting rights? A Democrat who does not agree with the need to protect voting rights in this country is committing political suicide because the Republicans uh, would rather cheat than compete and they're rigging the playing field right across the country in many, many states and with both yeah. combination of voter suppression and gerrymandering. So what explains his resistance to SB1, voting rights, they're for the People no, Act. That, no, that's a good point, and that's the one that really has me surprised. Um, my guess is that Senator Manchin uh, somehow believes that um, there are a lot of, lot of people in the state that believe that the, the last election was rigged, and so he can't support it. He, now, his response in the newspaper I found very unpersuasive. So his argument is that unless this is bipartisan, then it's unfair. But you can't react to some – if one party is refusing to vote for something that is the right thing to do, then it, you can't argue it's the right thing to do to do the wrong thing because other people are doing the wrong thing. That's illogical. So – um, my best guess is that there are significant numbers of people in West Virginia that believe that Joe Biden cheated in the election. Now, we know that's not true. We know that every single court, and we're talking about at least 50 courts, that looked at this case found that there was no widespread voter fraud. In fact, there was minimal problems. And if there were problems, a lot of times they were voting twice for for Trump. So, but you can't convince people who have already decided and made up their mind. These are the same people that actually believe that getting a vaccine, they're really getting a, um, a chip in their, in their shoulder, literally a chip, a, you know, a microchip in their arm. So there are people like that in the state, many people. And I think that's where he is concerned. But I would like to see him take the moral high ground on this one and be a moral leader. And I think he won't. I think this was a mistake for him. And he doesn't make mistakes that often. But I think that one was a mistake. So can he undo the mistake? I mean, he's still, uh, it's all about the filibuster. And if he thinks that, in fact, I'll quote 
Pam Garrison, the, the co-chair of the West Virginia Poor People's Campaign, who's organising this demonstration in Charleston tonight against Joe Manchin. She said since she watched Manchin, quote, talk about compromise, and I wonder what really is he in? Is he that delusional, or does he think we're that stupid? Um, I think that he can undo it. I think what I would be offering him is one... It, for the for the 15 is looking at it from all the different states point of view and that if there's a lower cost of living in one state that do the equivalent of 15 in that state or raise the 15 in other states so there's a moral equivalent equivalency on that so if you want 15 in west virginia you have to give 23 dollars in new york so that's right, the first but what thing. about the, what about voting rights that's the key one that's voting what, rights that's right. what's got the democrats really upset with right them. well that's what i would trade it for so I would say to him, we're going to, if you, we get you your infrastructure, your cable, so all of that, so a broad definition of infrastructure, and we do investments in West Virginia, so there's actually jobs, which will actually move then based on this $15 wage, um, an hour wage, it will move those wages up because the cost of living will start to go up. Then I would say, then, then he can say, okay, I'll vote for the Voting Rights Act and at the same time, he's delivered for West Virginians. And our young people are, not, are much more progressive. So I think he won't lose. Um, that, I think that will help him a lot. I think he, he, if he, there's a dance going on. He's, if he goes too far to the right, he loses the primary. Because people will say, well, we don't care anymore. The progressives will say, the left will say, in, in the state, which, by the way, the left is, fair, is very left in this state, and the right is very right. We're very polarized. So the moderates will want him because they think it's the best they can get. So I think he can't push too hard. There is, so there is a counterforce. But on the other hand, if the left pushes him too hard, he, they can push him right into the, hand, the arms of Mitch McConnell. So what... I think they have to do is they have to they have to give him that infrastructure and I think then and then say but this is contingent on that vote for the Voting Rights Act. He, I also think he doesn't care whether the Republicans are in I shouldn't say he doesn't care I think he probably cares somewhat but he's such a moderate democrat I've always seen him as a liberal republican um in many ways. So for him even though he votes most of the time with the Democrats, and he prefers the Democratic Party clearly by his voting pattern, I don't think it would, it's that big of a threat on his side. So that's where I would be working, and I think they need to, they need to understand this. But I, I think um, people are fed up. They see this as a moral and a human rights issue. But remember, Washington is never about morality and human rights. It's always a cost-benefit analysis, and that's what's going on. Well, if you talk about infrastructure, you better believe that Joe Biden has told Manchin already, what do you want, Joe? I mean, he's had to have this phony discussion with the other West Virginia Senator, Capito, and she's working for Mitch McConnell just to string the Democrats along. And their bottom line, the Republican senators, is they're not going to, they only want to agree to a puny infrastructure package because they don't want to raise taxes on corporations and the ultra-rich to pay for infrastructure. And that's the only way to get any real change in infrastructure. So, again, surely Biden has said anything you want, Joe. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, neither one of us is privy to those conversations, but I would think that that, I think you're right. It sounds accurate that he would be saying that, and that um, Manchin will have, is probably making some sort of political calculation right now as to whether it is better for him with the election coming up um, fairly soon, um, whether it's better for him to show the people of West Virginia that he's not going to just be a yes man for Biden or to show that, look, what he was able to extract from Biden, that's how I would how I would spin it, and I think that's an accurate spin. If he's able to get infrastructure here, and I hope he, he listens to this. I've been calling his office, put, making that message, is please get the infrastructure. That's what we need. And I wish the rest of the United States understood that, because if they were just to spend one day in West Virginia, just one day, and I'm not talking about the places that are touristy. I'm talking about go to real West Virginia, and they will understand that there's places you cannot get Internet. And that is a disgrace in the United States. But you can, get, you can get Sinclair and Fox, right? They bombard yeah, the state. Somehow, somehow they've figured it out. Yeah, so Sinclair and Fox um, are the dominant uh, news stations in almost all of West Virginia, except for in my area in Morgantown. So they've figured out how to get their message to West Virginians, that's through broadcast. So, but they can't, but somehow we can't get internet. And I know that because my students were online for a year and I know when they would get knocked out and sometimes I would even get knocked out in Morgantown. It's just not a, it's just not reliable compared to other parts of the country. And I've been, I've been all over the country so I can make comparisons on these things. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, you mentioned that if the progressives and liberals push too hard against Manchin, he could walk into the arms of Mitch McConnell. What do you think would happen if he did that? I mean, we know what would happen if he did that, but could he get reelected in West Virginia as a Republican? I'm assuming that that would be a deterrent. If he's worried about being reelected, he's up in 2022, isn't he? Um, yeah. So if he's worried about being re-elected, you said if he goes too far to the right, he'll lose the primary because there's enough West Virginians on the left in the in the primary process. And on the other hand, if he switches, could he get re-elected as a Republican? I think it's hard. And I think that's where, um, that's where there's a little bit of leverage on him. And the reason is because he won't get any of the Democrat votes. So all the Democrat will not vote for him. And then you have the Republicans that will want someone Trumpier. So I, I think it would be, you know, this very popular, this very once very popular governor, I don't think that is going to work. Um, remember, he was elected um, even when Obama was in office uh, with that, that commercial where he was shooting um, Obamacare. Remember with his gun, and that worked. Even though Obamacare was so, there's no state that did better under Obamacare than West Virginia. There was no, I mean, all every study shows that we do got they know more it money. Though? Do they right. know it? 